Welcome to BDO To Go, casual industry conversation brought to you by the restaurant industry professionals at BDO. The constantly evolving landscape of the industry forces operators and owners to adapt quickly and maintain a keen awareness of consumer and economic shifts. Understanding these business impacts and insights is key to the continued success and resilience of the restaurant industry. That's why we crafted our new BDO To Go podcast series, a monthly podcast that you can take to go. Now, here's your host, Jeff Tuba. Welcome back to another episode of the BDO To Go Restaurant Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Tuba. And on behalf of all of us at BDO, we appreciate you tuning in for another episode of Restaurant Industry Insights. You can find us on iTunes and Spotify each month, but we encourage you to click the subscribe button to automatically download our episodes as they come out. Today, we'll again be joined by Dana Zakowski of BDO as the moderator for this episode. Today, Dana is joined by Kevin Burke of Trinity Capital. Kevin's been a consistent speaker at our restaurant CFO bootcamp event, and we're excited to hear his insights today. Dana, I'll let you take it from here. Thanks, Jeff, for sending it over to us. And today we have Kevin Burke joining us. So Kevin, thank you so much. And I know today we're going to talk a little bit about what's going on in the economy and some of the lingering effects of COVID and winners and losers and where we think we're going to be hopefully six months, nine months, and a year from now moving in what we hope to be a much better place than we were six months, nine months, and a year ago. So, Kevin, before we even get started there, why don't you just introduce yourself to the audience for those who might not know you and your company and just some of the events that you guys have gone through in the past year? Sure. Thank you, Dana. So um, I I founded Trinity Capital uh, 20 20 years ago um, after we, a group of us from Franchise Mortgage Acceptance Company, uh, came over and uh, uh, after uh, FMAC was sold, we began Trinity, and over the last 20 years, we have sold more chain restaurants than anybody in the country and have uh, been involved in a lot of restructuring, a lot of uh, franchisor consulting, a lot of franchise association consulting. And we have you know, been students of the business uh, for, uh, you know, for a couple of decades now. So, you know, what we've seen this year is uh, obviously a a, a cataclysmic event. Um, There's been a quarter trillion dollars in restaurant sales lost, hundreds of thousands of jobs lost. Uh, Some will be replaced, many will not. Um, Thousands of restaurants closed. And it's going to reshape this business uh, as we head into the new year. And I think that... uh, Fortunately, I think that the the National Restaurant Association did a fabulous job uh, lobbying um, the administration and uh, uh, Secretary Mnuchin and the SBA to make sure that PPP provisions were restaurant friendly, uh, restaurant centric, if you will. And uh, I can't give enough credit for what they did because there are many chains right now with franchisees where the franchisees' cash balances, you know, basically what they receive from uh, PPP, and it's getting them through this time, and hopefully they'll be able to pass the baton onto the next year without running out of cash and be able to, hopefully, if we have two, uh, two more vaccines approved, we'll have three vaccines, probably take six to nine months to inoculate most of the country, and we could be relatively normal, not 100% normal, but relatively normal by, say, you know, September, October of next year. 
So thinking about that and thinking if it takes till September, October of next year to get back to where we were, what do you think some of the most lingering effects on the industry are going to be after this COVID and after once we're starting to get vaccinated and things go back to whatever our new normal becomes? Right. Well, you know, I, I think there are probably three categories of that. One is uh, the, the, the competitive dynamics. Um, there have been a lot of closures and there have been a lot of concept failures. We've lost a casual dining chain almost every week uh, this year, uh, most to bankruptcy, but some some. Uh, that have done, you know, ABCs, you know, assignment uh, for the benefit of a creditor or uh, simply given the, the company back to the lenders. Um, so the closures are uh, are going to make the business less competitive, which is good for the survivors. And we're going to continue to see closures uh, throughout this year and, and into next year as the lingering effects of uh, diminished sales and uh, uh, in, in, in many categories, uh, uh, depressed margins uh, continue to create negative cash flow. I think another you know, effect is there's going to be some permanent changes in, in hygiene and restaurant configuration, spacing. Uh, many quick service restaurants have found that during COVID, they really they truncated their operating hours. So perhaps the early hours for those that weren't stalwarts with breakfast, you know, eliminating early hours and eliminating late night hours where you have perhaps less sales per hour, um, uh, that coupled with closing dining rooms, not staffing dining rooms, not staffing cashiers, uh, closing the soda fountain where people are not spilling or, or, or stealing or, uh, you know, gumming up the, uh, the soda fountain, those those uh, activities have all contributed to better margins, and they have QSR operators thinking about, do I really need a dining room, and what are the best hours of operation for me? So that's going to be a permanent thing. And then I think the final thing is that uh, you're clearly seeing those firms that, that have uh, – Strong advertising budgets, cachet with millennials, the ability to have good delivery and carry out and good portability food. They are the winners and the, the concepts that cannot compete with that are closing stores and struggling. And I do think that we're going to have a, a, a much different looking lineup two years from now as a result of all this. Yeah, for sure. And you said a little bit about how we're losing casual dining a little bit more each day. How does the casual dining companies that, how do you feel that the casual dining companies that survive this make themselves better and how do they thrive going forward here? Well, some of them have done an excellent job of trying to convert from a platform that had very little uh, delivery or carryout options uh, and of course no drive-through. Um, and some of them have been able to come up with, uh, you know, 40, 50, 60 percent of prior sales with a skeletal crew and perhaps some rent abatement. Uh, and they've been able to get by. And I, I really admire some of these concepts. And, you know, a couple of them that come to, to mind are Buffalo Wild Wings and Applebee's have done a, a yeoman's job at um, at, you know, producing revenue. Uh, at a time when you had, you know, complete dining room shutdowns. And that's been very impressive. Um, but there have been casual dining formats that, that where the food is not so portable. And, um, 
and or it is you know less desirable or the price point is a little bit higher it's more of a a polished casual or or maybe a place that has a lot of uh celebration business you know birthdays anniversaries and graduations and what have you and some of those concepts have you know struggled more without uh as much uh delivery and carry out you know option right and you mentioned that Buffalo Wild Wings, even without the dining room, did such a great job. I mean, even to top that with no sports on, it was really just fantastic to see some of the innovations they had there for sure. And what do you think continues with consumer behavior as we start to go back to the new normal? One of the things you mentioned was how some restaurants were able to shut, uh, were able to open a little later because there might not have been the breakfast. Do you think people start going back to work and start traveling early again? Or do you think that everything shifts with after this and when people start to vaccinate? And how, what is your thoughts on how this all plays out? I, I think when, when things return to normal, it'll almost be a new normal. And for instance, um, I've got a friend that is a, uh, a senior executive at a, a global financial firm. And he said that they are going, when they return, they're going to return to 35% less office space, which I was shocked. And this is a, you know, a top 10 global financial firm. Um, and so uh, yeah, they have found that some people are just as, uh, just as efficient, uh, if not more productive, working from home, not having the commuting time, not having to you know, throw a suit on, not having, uh, you know, any of the any of the drama of travel uh, to and from work. And so there will be some changes and, and and that will affect our industry, because if those people aren't coming into the office and you have a restaurant that is in the office building or in a food court near the office, um, you're going to suffer from that. And uh, on the other hand, if you have a suburban location and somebody uh, is now you know going to be home all the time, you may pick up some business. So there will be changing uh, sales patterns, uh, changing demographics and location dynamics will there will be a little bit of um, duck duck goose on locations, you know, urban versus suburban versus um, rural. Right. And I think one of the things I was going to ask next, I think you just hit on the head is how does the suburban market change? I know in conversations I'm having with friends of mine who used to be city dwellers and now moved to the suburbs. So now we're into the middle of the winter and we're still seeing people eating outside and dining rooms not at full capacity. Obviously up north, it's a lot, a lot colder. And to your point earlier, people are down in Florida and they're still eating outside. Do you think trends like that stay through the through the next year and going forward? Or do you think once people feel comfortable, they're going to return to the dining rooms and be back to normal, back to what we were doing a year ago normal? Right, right. So I think there will be some lingering effects of COVID in as much as um, there, there will be a permanent shift to more al fresco dining. I think people have discovered they like dining outside. And as long as you can bring a heat lamp or have a comfortable temperature, you're going to be good. And, you know, you need the heat lamp and it needs to work because if you put on a jacket, but yet it's still uh, humid and cold outside, you know, the food winds up getting cold within two minutes. And so that doesn't work. But I think restaurants, you know, they understand that. 
and you know bringing on uh, heated dishes and having covers and having uh, the right amount of heat lamps and so forth will work uh, in areas that are uh, areas like Florida, uh, California, and southeastern and southwestern states. Um, so that's one trend. I think another trend is that um, you know yes, people will return into in into inside dining rooms uh, as as jurisdictions open up. Uh, and there's there's certainly you know a, a yearning for people to have a a a, a date or a, or a husband and wife having dinner having an intimate dinner you know where you're right across the table from one another and being served and have a candlelight and all that but I do think that there is going to be um, a significant uh, fraction of of dine in restaurant uh, business which when weather permits or where geography permits will wind up being al fresco you know, out on the sidewalk, out on a patio, you know, somewhere outside. And all I want to do is sit at a bar with a good glass of wine and chit chat with a bartender. And maybe one day I'll be able to do that again. Uh, I feel that most people who have ever heard you speak know that you always have a great outlook, especially after an election or as the political tide is turning. Could you give any insights on what you think the next year looks like uh, as far as whether it be bailouts or subsidies or anything like that, as far as the economy goes towards the restaurant space with the change in administration? Well, I think that the um, what we should expect from this new administration is um, uh, the tips that we will get on that will be looking at the people who have been appointed. And, you know, there are appointees who uh where you can check a box or two or sometimes even three. And there are appointees where you don't care about checks and boxes. You're looking for somebody who has the greatest merit for that position. And I think that looking at that, it gives you a little bit of an insight to an incoming administration. Uh, number one, secondly, I do think that, um, you know, having the Democrats in power will, um, will, it probably lead to a little more social spending, a little more uh, consumer legislation, a little more taxation, a little more regulatory focus. So we will see some changes. But I also think that um, the with, you know, with the Senate, uh, you know, not necessarily going along with everything, there will be a little bit of some honest brokering going on. So I don't think we're going to see um, radical shifts in uh, government behavior, but we will definitely take a step to the left. And I think that, you know, the United States in general over the last 30 years has becoming, you know, more uh, like one of the uh, social democracies of, of Western Europe. And I think we can expect more of that kind of activity uh, in these four years than we had in the last four years, for sure. Mm -hmm. And as you guys are starting to see new deals and have conversations with people, about whether selling their companies or buying, what are some of the trends you're seeing in the deal space as people are looking forward to the next year? Well, I think that multiples recovered nicely um, in, you know, last year. I think that the you know during the summer of COVID, um, in fairness, there weren't a lot of transactions. So saying multiples recovered is not completely uh, um, uh, apples to apples, but I, I, I would... I would suggest that, and certainly private equity has consolidated great swatches of the SIC, you know, universe, if you will, the Standard 
industrial code. And, you know, there's less deals out there. So that has had a little bit of a natural progression for multiples to come up a little. Um, but still, there's, you know, there's also greater diligence, and greater discipline on private equity. And so I think that, you know, multiples have come up, but that is provided that there's growth. And uh, I, I don't think they've given up the growth mantle. Uh, they're just willing to pay a little more for growth than they were perhaps, uh, you know, a year or two or three ago. So that that's one, uh, I, I think, clear trend. You know, another one is that uh, we've got a lot of um, septuagenarian business owners that, you know, I, I think will be selling uh, as they believe that uh, it's an opportune time to sell. And um, who knows what the tax code will hold, what the regulatory burden will be in the future, what, you know, will happen to wages and commodities. But certainly the $3 trillion deficit that we ran uh, you know, last year in in, in 2020, um, certainly pushed the dollar down. I beat up the dollar a little bit uh, mm-hmm. against the euro and the yen. And, you know, bringing the dollar down 10% is, shows up in commodity costs because commodities worldwide are generally priced in dollars. And so um, that is something to keep our eye on because as we continue to run, we become a little braver in our deficits, you know, in a, in a 22, $23 trillion economy, we don't seem to fear the the trillion dollar deficit so much anymore because it's only perhaps four percent or so, maybe a little more of the um, of the budget, and so um, that that's a trend I think we'll see more of. I worry about that because uh, funding the deficit and having a weak dollar, you know, at some point if those become uh, double whammies and we have you know interest rate pressure you know, we could be in some trouble. So that's something to keep our eye on. And hopefully uh, uh, Secretary Yellen will um, will take steps to make sure that we don't increase the economy's risk profile in, in that respect. You said how you have some older franchise owners or older business owners looking to sell. Are you seeing any trends on the other side where pe- where there's a lot of interest in people buying certain things? Are there, are people looking more at d- different geographies or different industries or are legacy brands coming back? What are some of the things you're seeing from people looking on the buy side? Well, I think that people are, you know, in the QSR space, clearly they're looking for concepts which have uh, drive-throughs. I mean, if you have a drive-through and you have a, a really good delivery and carry-out program, um, you could have done very well during uh, during COVID-19 uh, last year, 2020. And so if you have really portable food like chicken, like pizza, uh, you're going to be more attractive in the M&A world. I think that if you have delivery and carry out options that are, that are competitive and you have drive-throughs, I think that helps. Uh, I think that if you have cachet with millennials and you skew towards, you know, younger half of Gen X and millennials, um, I think that's a big, uh, 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 a big attractive uh, quality in the M&A market. And then I think finally, you know, having occupancy costs that's under control. And that's why I think a lot of these, a lot of these uh, QSR operators right now, the, the franchisors are really thinking about rethinking uh, restaurant layout, because if you can reduce the size of the real estate you buy, you can really take a lot of cost out of development and enable perhaps more development and or if you can integrate ghost kitchens that have, um, you know, delivery and carry out options and or the ability to meet somebody in a store uh, or deliver straight out, 
you know, that's obviously a very, very uh, cost efficient way to, you know, meet customer demand as well. And I think that all of those, uh, that litany of uh, features will be very attractive to, you know, investors. And you mentioned Ghost Kitchen, and I think there's right now probably no other topic as hot when it comes to real estate as Ghost Kitchen, yes or no. How much importance do you place on the ability of being able to go to the Ghost Kitchen? So I know some of them let you come and pick up there, and some are purely just a facade, and then you're using it as a delivery vehicle only? Well, I think that a lot of it depends upon the concept, um, you know, how much wait time there is, uh, and number one, and then number two, what their delivery protocol is. If you are a business that's got uh, uh, stores that are able to uh, take delivery from, from ghost kitchens and set up convenient uh, delivery and carry out and, uh, and or drive through options, if you will, um, you may, you know, delivery out of the ghost kitchen may not be as necessary. The other thing is, you know, the ghost kitchen starts to look more like a store if you have delivery and carry out and pick up options because you can't just throw the food out on a on a takeout table. Um, you've got to make sure that the right people are getting the right orders um, so that you don't have, you know, chaos. And so I think that, you know, there, it becomes a staffing and a space issue. Um, so if the ghost kitchen is in a high cost real estate area and the object is to have less footage, then having the delivery and carry out option at the ghost kitchen may not make as much sense as it would in another area um, where uh, where the, the ghost kitchen is not serving 100, 100% of the function of reducing occupancy costs, but it's actually aimed at higher throughput for augmenting other stores you have in the area that have delivery, carry out and, and drive through. But in the in the busy day parts could use some augmentation and having these ghost kitchens, you can do a lot more business. Everybody knows that there are many concepts that, that do all the business they can handle in their particular strong day parts. And that you could do more if you had more capacity. And if a ghost kitchen can do that, that's great. But you just have to have a very robust um, uh, delivery carry out uh, options so that you're putting food into customers' hands that is timely and and hot, you know, warm, carries well, tr- good portability, uh, you know, that's part of it. So another thing I would say is that concepts that have food that has poor or bad portability, the ghost kitchen is um, has got to be thought through very carefully about how close it is to the end user and, you know, how it's set up. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. And we here in New York have been used to ghost kitchens, even though we didn't realize it. And now more and more as it comes to light, it's interesting to see who's doing what and how they're doing it. I think as we come to the close of the conversation, I mean, you gave a lot of great insight, a lot of good things about what's going on. Again, your core business is as an investment banker, buying and selling and advising. Someone who's looking right now to sell the company and really get everything together to do so. What's the thing to tell them? What's the thing they should be looking out for? And what should they really be focusing on and doing in the next few months to get their business ready if they wanted to sell this year? Well, I think they want to make sure that books and records are um, accessible and uh, that that they answer the questions they're supposed to, that everything is in order, because it's a reflection on 
what kind of business person you are about how easy it is to access books and records, how well they are understood by various executives in the firm and managers and what have you. And so I think getting all that organized is important, number one. I think secondly, looking at any lease options and other things that need to be cleaned up and talking to landlords and figuring out adjustments you can make there, you know, makes sense as well. I think, um, you know, building a cash position because, you know, obviously, you know, cash is not taxable. Uh, what's taxable is income. And uh, you've got, you know, your income would be uh, uh, capital gains, ordinary uh, and recapture. And and those, obviously, you want to manage the, the flow of funds between those uh, those to the extent that you can and optimize to your you know lowest tax liability. Um, I, I think that looking at making sure financials are uh, dovetail with with audits uh, or or reviewed statements, whatever you've got, making sure that your your internal monthlies and your uh, management reports um, don't contradict the audit or, or vice versa. Um, and I think that's important. I think also looking at your org chart. reviewing your staff and who stays and who goes and who's strong and, and who could use some coaching. And, and, you know, all that is also a necessary um, task, I think, to make sure that people are um, prepared and, and uh, well coached. Um, And also you just want to make sure that you give people an attaboy that, you know, if the business is going to change hands, it doesn't mean people are going to, you know, lose their space or lose their job. Uh, You know, just means that there may be some different shareholders and, the, you know, the owner may stick around with as a minority owner, but but at any rate, all those things I think should should be covered uh, at least with the you know key executives, so there's no surprises. Um, and then I think that uh, you know looking at facilities and making sure that if you've got a delinquent capex that you uh, remodeling that you get on it because that again is a reflection of you know your professionalism, your your uh, you know respecting your agreements, making sure you're not behind with your franchisor, and you know being very introspective about. Uh, any obligations you have about, you know, when they're going to be taken care of so that you're not, you know, making excuses by the time you sell that, oh, well, you know, we should have got on that, but we didn't, but we'll give you a credit for it. You know, it that doesn't that doesn't come off as well as, hey, we're really all buttoned up. We've done everything we're supposed to do. Uh, that gives people a lot more comfort in the, you know, somebody's stewardship of the business that is being, uh, uh, you know, tendered. Perfect. Well, I think that's all great advice and thank you. And as always, there's no one I like talking to more than you. So I appreciate it. And I look forward to continuing these conversations and that's it. So thanks so much, Kevin. Thank you, Dana. Thank you for listening to BDO to go past episodes and related insights are available at bdo.com slash bdo to go, or you can go to iTunes or Spotify to rate review, share, or subscribe to this podcast. The views expressed by our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of BDO. For more information on BDO's restaurant industry practice and the resources we provide, visit www.bdo.com slash restaurants.